I'm sure I don't have to convince you that we live in a sinful world. We know this because we're sinners and all men are sinners. Sometimes, however, we can be lulled into the illusion or delusion that the world is really not all that bad. Or that men are basically good after all. Some might even think that the world is getting better. And then something happens, or perhaps several things at once, things that can shake us to our very core, the very core of our being, and snaps us out of that delusion. Something unthinkable, something shocking happens, and it reminds us again of what sinful men and women are capable of. Living in an age of endless news cycles and video cameras everywhere, it's getting harder and harder to ignore it. What we used to know and hear about, we can see with our own eyes and how difficult it is even to watch sometimes. How many times do we hear ourselves or others asking, what is this world coming to? How could anyone treat another human being like that? How could anyone do such a thing? How would anyone treat someone in such a way? And where are we headed as a society? It's very easy to think, though, that things are worse now than ever before. And then we watch a documentary or we read a history book and we're reminded that whatever's going on now, it's not the first time or the worst time. In fact, it can never be the worst time because the worst crime that could ever be committed has already taken place. The crime I'm speaking of, of course, was the judicial murder of the incarnate Son of God when they crucified the Lord of glory. And of all the examples we could ever find around us in this present day or Throughout the pages of history, there was never a greater display of man's depravity than what we saw in the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the heinousness of a crime is not always measured by the cruelty of the act alone, but is often determined by the object upon whom it was perpetrated. I think of an example of one of the crimes that you see often captured on videos nowadays is senseless beatings. Uh, they seem to be increasing and occurring at an alarming rate. Someone will walk up to someone they don't even know and hit them as hard as they can and knock them to the ground and then walk away as though they had done nothing. Uh, any senseless beating is horrific. But isn't it even worse if the object of the beating is, say, an elderly person or a child? Then the crime even becomes worse. So what I mean is that the heinousness of a crime is determined not only by the cruelty of the act alone, but it's often determined by the object upon whom it was perpetrated. If you turn in your Bibles for a moment, and then we won't be staying in this passage, but just to show that the Scriptures teach this, is 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7. 
uh, I'm sorry, verses 6 and 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul has been speaking of the cross and Jesus Christ and Him crucified and that there's nothing else that He would preach but Christ and Him crucified. And then in verse 6 he says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew or understood. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They were ignorant, Paul says, but it was a willful ignorance and it was a culpable ignorance. And because of their ignorance, they crucified the Lord of glory. Paul says that they could not have fully understood the magnitude of their unspeakable act of wickedness, for if they had, they would not have carried it out at all. Now, we know and believe that God was sovereign in all of this, and the Bible makes it very clear, crystal clear, in fact, unmistakably clear, that everything down to the very last detail was all carried out according to the eternal plan and decree of God. And yet, the Bible also shows us that men, by wicked hands, nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. And they are responsible for their sin and will be held accountable for it. Now, when we speak of man's depravity, we usually qualify it by saying that This doesn't mean that man is as bad as he can possibly be. We say that he is as bad off as he can be and that sin has affected his entire being. It's affected his mind, his affections, and his will, as we talked about this morning. And so man is guilty. He's vile and he's helpless. But in the death of Christ, we see the depths of depravity, don't we? Depravity can descend no lower. Why? Because they crucified, Paul says, the Lord of glory. Jesus gave a parable of a man who built a vineyard and he leased it out. And the arrangement in those days was that they would be able to take from the proceeds of that vineyard, from the fruit of the vineyard. And so he'd send his servants to collect. But each time he sent his servants, they beat one, they killed another. And finally he said, I will send them my son. Surely they will respect him. But also prophesying in that very parable that this is what they would do to the Lord of glory himself. They would kill him. Surely they will respect my son. Now, this evening, I want us to look at the depravity of man and the death of Christ. I don't have a one single text to turn to, but we want to just look at it in a in more of a topical way. Um, but uh, the depravity of man is seen very clearly. It was prophesied even before Christ came, hundreds of years before he came. In Isaiah 53, He begins by asking the question, Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he, that is Christ, shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form of, or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. But not only would you not desire him, but it goes on to say he is despised and rejected. Remember, this is speaking of the Son of God. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. What depravity man is capable of. Well, we see the depravity of the human heart in the actions of Judas when he betrayed our Lord. Uh, You can turn over, please, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, it was there at the Passover supper just before Jesus instituted the supper we're about to take tonight. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 17, it says, In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, it says, and said to him, One by one, is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. You imagine Judas sitting there knowing that he was the one. He was the man. They're all asking, is it I? Is it I? While Judas all the while knew it was him. Consider the selfishness involved in this great sin against the Lord. He sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. The Lord of glory for 30 pieces of silver. The aggravation of his sin was that he sinned against such great light. However, he may have justified what he was about to do. He had to suppress truth, a lot of truth. He had to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He had been with the Lord and with the other disciples from the very beginning. That means he was an eyewitness. An eyewitness to all that Jesus did and said. He was an eyewitness to the miracles that Christ performed. He saw Him do those very things, raising the dead even. He was there. He saw it happen with His own eyes. He heard the teachings of Christ. He saw firsthand His blameless life and spotless example. But sin deceived Him. Satan blinded Him. He betrayed the Lord of glory. But then after that, He led the enemies of Christ to Him and kissed the Lord. Remember Jesus said, Friend, betrayest thou me with a kiss? What a horrible act of depravity. After after he led those enemies of Christ to him and they arrested him and took him off, he said, my hands have betrayed innocent blood. His eyes were opened. The scales fell off. He could see now what he couldn't see before. My hands have betrayed innocent blood. 
So the depravity is in the heart and actions of Judas when he betrayed the Lord. The depravity in the heart and actions of Peter when he denied the Lord is another example of man's depravity. And just like with Judas's betrayal, the Lord foretold Peter's denial. Here, if you haven't turned in your Bibles, still in Mark chapter 14, we read in verse 27, And then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I it will yet I will not be. That is, I will not be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And so abhorrent was that thought. Verse 31 tells us that he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. How deceived can he be? And it says, and they all said likewise. What self-confidence there was before. Though all forsake thee, I will never deny thee. And then after he does, you see that self-preservation kicks in. This young slave girl says, you're one of them. When she saw him by the fire warming his hands. And he vehemently denied him three times and even began to curse. Peter sinned against great light, didn't he? The greater the light, the greater the sin. And then we think in the third example of those religious leaders, Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, along with the Jewish nation. They said that this man is worthy of death. This man, this man is worthy of death. When you see a good man persecuted, when you see a good man prosecuted, you say, this isn't right. This isn't fair. He hasn't done what you've said he's done. Well, the Lord Jesus had done no wrong. <laughs> he had done nothing worthy of death. He had done nothing worthy of anything. And these religious leaders, they too knew. They heard of the mighty acts and works that he had done. They also had great light. And yet, moved by envy and in a fear that they would lose their place and their position, they handed Him over, the Bible says, to be crucified. And even when Pilate offers them a true criminal or the Lord Jesus Christ, one to be released and the other to be crucified, they cried out for the criminal. Give us Barabbas. How sinful, how wicked. Can people be? In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of His mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, another place where he had done so many things. He said, you who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades. 
For if the mighty works which are done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. These cities saw his mighty acts. They heard his marvelous teaching and they still rejected him. You think that if you would have been in that day or you'd seen the works that Christ done, you would not have done that. But they, like all men, had a depraved heart and you have a depraved heart. And so you would have done the same. And I would have done the same unless God had opened my heart like He did Lydia as we studied this morning. And then look at Pilate, Pontius Pilate. The trial's over. The decision has been made. Pontius Pilate, though he desired to release Jesus, in fact, Peter says in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, that Pilate was determined to release him. In the end, though, what did he do? He handed him over to be crucified. And according to his own words, he had the power to crucify him or release him. He had that absolute power. His hands weren't tied. He didn't have to do what he did. He chose to crucify him. He knew what the right thing to do was. The only right thing to do was to release him. He confessed that he found no fault with him. He told the people, I find no fault with this man. And so again, the only right thing to do was to release him. Why didn't he? Again, it was self-interest and self-preservation. The same sin that Peter had. Trying to preserve his life, preserve himself from being arrested along with the Lord. He denied him three times. So Pilate did what he did to preserve his place and his authority. To do what he did, he had to suppress great truth. You remember as he's speaking to the Lord Jesus, this Lord of glory, he asked him, what is truth? What is truth? When the truth of God was standing right before him. Another example of the depravity of man and the death of Christ was that of the Roman soldiers. In John's Gospel, chapter 19, if you turn there for a moment, I just want to look at the wicked, horrible, depraved acts that they engaged in towards the Lord of glory. Now, we respect soldiers generally. But they don't always act respectfully. Sometimes they act shamefully. They did so in this case. In John chapter 19, it says in verse 1, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged Him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on His head. And they put, a, put on Him a purple robe. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck Him with their hands. They acted wickedly. What a despicable display of, of mockery and ridicule. Here they are having fun at the expense of another. You know, sometimes children will do that. They'll, they'll have fun with a particular classmate who has maybe a disability or something and they'll, they'll make fun of them. 
You know, the Bible warns against that. It warns against putting a stumbling block before a blind man. Oh, let's watch this blind man fall over this block. He can't see it. Watch, he's going to fall. He falls. God says that's horrible. How much more horrible it was for the mockery and ridicule they 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 hurled at the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, he claims to be a king. Let's put on this purple robe. Remember, Lydia was a seller of purple. Purple was for royalty. He's a king. Let's put this robe on him. And they also took that crown of thorns. They weaved it, cunningly weaved it, and they put it on his head. And they put it on his head and they began to beat him on the head. They struck him with their hands and they struck him with sticks, beating that crown upon his head. You're a king. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. Maybe what we do will impress our superiors, they may have thought, or at least our peers will think it was funny. Having a little fun with the prisoner, he claims to be a king. Later, they would cast lots for his clothes. Later, though, one of them would have his eyes opened and would declare that this is indeed the Son of God. Had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The light was there. It was clear. It wasn't something veiled. It's their eyes were blinded. It was clear they, the truth was right before them, but they suppressed it. Just like Pilate suppressed it. They suppressed it as well. What an act of depravity. And then finally, you think of the two thieves on the cross. They sent Him to the cross. They nailed Him to the cross between two thieves. These two thieves dying yet still depraved. Depraved as they joined in the mockings. The people were hurling insults and these two thieves were hurling insults as well. One of them, their eyes were open though. Right in the middle of their curses, his eyes were opened. He knew and admitted that this man did nothing worthy of death. And admitted that they both had done what they had done and they both were where they ought to be. They ought to be executed, but not this one. And he's the one who turned to the Lord, as you remember, and said, remember me when you enter into glory. What terrible, wicked acts. Acts of depravity. And again, this is the greatest act of depravity that's ever been witnessed on this earth because of the greatness of the object upon whom it was perpetrated. All of this cruelty, though, was found not in a single individual or a single group. It was perpetrated by all. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27, Peter praying says, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Romans, with the Gentiles, 
and the people of Israel, that no one's excluded here. They were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. All were guilty. All were guilty either by their actions or by their silence. The depravity of man reached not its heights, but its depths. Now, in contrast to all of this depravity, we see the absolute holiness and selflessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There He is on the cross, going there willingly. Remember, He reminded Pilate when Pilate says, I have authority to crucify you or to release you. And Jesus, knowing full well and said with that regal authority, you would have no power against me unless it were given from above. Do you not now think that I could call down legions of angels? He could have stopped it in a moment, but he didn't want to stop it. He, in one sense, had a desire there in the Garden of Gethsemane when he cried out, Lord, if it's possible, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And then when they came, the guards with their clubs and swords and their torches, they come to arrest the Lord. And Peter wants to stop it again. And he says, for this cause I came into the world. For this cause I came into the world. He came to go to the cross and to go to the cross for sinners. And so his actions were absolutely selfless. Everything he endured was all for sinners' gain. This is a faithful saying, Paul said, and worthy of all acceptance, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. There He was dying for depraved sinners just like these who committed these, this atrocious crime and these atrocious crimes, I should say. He actually died for some of those very sinners who personally engaged in this horribly sinful act. There on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stands before those Jews who are surrounding him, he puts the blame squarely at their feet, whom you crucified. By wicked hands. And in that same message, He offers them the way of salvation. When they cried out, what must we do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He offered them salvation. We would think that God was ready to send down His angels or have the earth open up and swallow them, but He brings them the Gospel the good news of salvation, that they can have their sins as awful and horrendous as they really were, that those sins could be forgiven. Jesus Christ, the selfless Son of God, dying for sinners who personally engaged in this sinful act. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 tells the Christians there how they're to act and how they're to live. And he says, let each of you look out not for your own interests, 
but for the interests of others. Everyone that committed those sinful acts, they were looking out for themselves. Paul says we're to look out for the interests of others. And then he gives that supreme example of the one who did this very thing, who laid aside his own interests for the interests of others, who humbled himself and became a man and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was absolutely selfless in everything he did. He became obedient unto death. That points to the extent of his humiliation. Greater love has no man than this, Jesus said in John fifteen thirteen, than to lay down one's life for his friends. It was the ultimate sacrifice, wasn't it? To lay down your life. But it wasn't just any death. Even death on a cross. And that's not pointing to the severity of the death or the cruelty of the death but to the curse of the death. He died on a cross. Cursed, the Bible says, is everyone who hangs on a tree. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God became a curse for us. On the cross, He would become that curse. On the cross, He would suffer in unutterable agonies, not the wrath of men, but the wrath of God for sin. The cross speaks of the whole curse of God upon sin. The Lord laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. That kind of iniquity. People have the idea He died for good sinners or respectable sinners. He died for the worst sinners. The Apostle Paul said He died for the chief of sinners. Being Himself one of those post Resurrection persecutors. He persecuted the Son of God by persecuting the church. This is why the Lord Jesus said, if it's possible, Lord, let this cup pass from Me. This cup was the wrath of God that He must drink. And He must drink it down to the dregs. Every drop of it He drank for us. What a sinless selfless act. He arrives to do His Father's will. He humbled Himself and He goes to the cross. And John Murray said, there were no lower depths possible. So when we see depravity reaching its lowest depths, we see also the Lord Jesus humbling Himself to the lowest depths possible. The Jews crucified Christ. The Romans crucified Christ. The Gentiles crucified Christ. But our sin against God and the Lord Jesus also crucified Christ. For it was on the cross He there died for our sins. The just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. So here at the cross we see the greatest depravity of man. We see the, the grace of God. The great Amazing grace of God in dying for sinners. What an amazing Lord that He would do this. He would suffer the indignation of mere creatures. And then He would suffer the unmitigated wrath of God for sinners. What an amazing thing. 
Amazing love beyond degree, the hymn writer put it. Beyond degree. That He would suffer such for me. Oh, what a, what a, what a Savior who would give Himself up for our sins. Yes, we are depraved. Totally depraved. That doesn't mean we're as bad as we can be, but in our own hearts, we could be as bad as anyone has ever been. But it was for sinners Christ died. For my sins, for your sins. For the worst sinners on earth. He died on the cross. And so we can come to Him knowing that our sins are completely forgiven, washed away, no matter how great, no matter how many, no matter how often. Our sins are washed away by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a Savior. What an act of selflessness. Right in the midst of the most selfish, self-interested acts of sin imaginable. He died the just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. Let's pray. Gracious Father,